Lord God, as we uh, start our session this morning, we just want to thank you uh, for your faithfulness to us. For those who have already been in the uh, early service and heard Pastor Scott's message from Joshua, we recognize uh, your your goodness, your power uh, will fit in. Uh, the truths that we learned there will fit in well with some of those things that we'll study today from, from Colossians. And uh, Lord, I just thank you for the continuity of your word, the way that it, it all works together, the way the truths that we learn in the Old Testament uh, are, are, are vi uh, very visually seen in, in the New Testament as well. And we recognize that uh, you are God who is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And so, Lord, we, we, we just thank you uh, for who you are. Uh, pray for Pastor Summers. Uh, as he preaches in another church this morning, pray that you would uh, strengthen and encourage him for that. Give him safety as he travels uh, back and forth. And Father, I pray that you will open our own hearts and minds to your word today. And we give you praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in... Uh, Chapter one of, of Colossians, and will be for a uh, for a few weeks. Pastor Summers last week provided a, a really great introduction uh, to Colossians, and especially looking at the city of Colossae and what uh, what that um, what city that uh, what that city was like, and all the things that that took place there. You're dealing with, uh, uh, as Paul writes to the city at Colossae, you'll remember that he's dealing with uh, with heresy that was with, has been labeled the Colossian heresy. It was the the Gnostic teaching of that day, and. Uh, and he's writing Colossians, you just as a way of a reminder to, to solidify the confidences of the, the church toward the supremacy of Christ in all things. And that's going to become more and more evident the further we get into, uh, even into the first chapter of uh, this letter. While Paul was writing about the Colossian heresy back in, in that day, that is his message is of no less value to us today, very relevant to us. What was termed as the Colossian heresy then could rightly be known as the, the American her heresy or the modern day heresy. Uh, because Colossae was located in a, uh, along the, the trade route, as, as Pastor Summers taught us last week, it was an, a city with an eclectic background, people uh, from all over. And teachings emerged as a result of that from what would have been a hodgepodge of Christianity and Judaism, of angel worship and um, uh, astrology and, and Greek mythology, uh, and Greek philosophy of that day, and, and all those things. When you stop and think about it, our world today is, is no different. Just as it was in Colossae, we live in a, a place where we're surrounded with a host of religions as... as uh, in our country particularly, has become a, a melting pot of people from all over the world. And people from all over the world bring their religious thought and philosophy with us. And so there are a host of religions that have um, that are amongst us today that have perverted Christianity 
with falsities, and in some case, blended Christianity with pagan religions. And so we see that uh, today. Uh, take, for example, the Unity Church. And I don't know how many of you might be familiar with the Unity Church. There's a, there's a uh, United Universalist Church. That's a different thing. There's, there's uh, uh, other uh, churches that, that use that word. But um, the Unity Church is one that was actually started in, in 1889 by a couple in Kansas. Um, but it has grown over the years, and, and this is what they, they state. They say, we, most, uh, we do most certainly accept the divinity of Christ and of Jesus Christ, and we believe most thoroughly in the work which he did for mankind. Now, if we compare that to the doctrinal statement we have here at Newcastle, our doctrinal statement says we believe that Jesus Christ is God, that he was born of a virgin and lived a sinless life, that he died on the cross for our sins and was raised from the dead on the third day. Now, we compare those two doctrinal statements and you say, well, the first one says they believe in Christ and, the, and it says that they believe in the work that he did for mankind. Aren't we the same? Well, in, in actuality, we're not. Uh, in in uh, looking at those things, the, the first one we recognize a very vague statement, and it, it doesn't reveal, um, but doesn't reveal the truth about who they are. Now, um, when you ask, we the. It, it sounds like they're the same like when they talk about Jesus Christ. I know who Christ is, but they say Christ and Jesus Christ. So I know who Jesus Christ is. Who is Christ? And, and here's their answer. In his truest state, man is the Christ. As the oak is in the acorn, so God is in man. Now that's not the same as we believe then you say, what do they mean when they speak of the work he did for mankind? Do they mean that he died for the sins of the world and he rose again on the third day? The answer is no. They don't even believe in sin, and neither do they believe in, in, uh, in sickness or, or even, even death, for that matter. As Jesus walked on the earth, according to their thinking, he simply provided an example for all of us to follow. That was his, the work that he did for mankind, was to be an example. They teach there's no heaven or hell. God in his grace simply grants that each soul be reborn in a new body to live life all over again and maybe get it right next time. <laughs> Do those two doctrinal st statements still seem a lot alike? They don't. It's interesting, I was... Uh, um, how many of you remember Young Sun Moon? The Moonies? I haven't heard about them for a while, but that was a, uh, a large religious sect that, that had a following of um, a man who considered himself to be a modern-day Messiah, that, that God had appeared to him and asked him to, to finish the work which got interrupted by Christ when he went to the cross, uh, which certainly is, is different. I don't know how many of you might have gotten the same thing. If you, in, in the mail yesterday, I got a copy of yesterday, the day before, 
I got a copy mailed to me of the, the Epic Times. Did, did others of you get that in your, in your mail, or am I just special? Uh, <laughs> others, others of you did, too. Well, there's a section in it. I'm, I'm not even sure how it fits into the, to the paper, but it was called Viewpoints. Did any of you read that? It's, um, it, it is... It, just brings about again this whole idea that uh, that our world isn't much different than than uh, it was in Paul's day. It uh, says here, just in the introduction of it, that uh, Mr. Li Hangzi is the founder of spiritual dis uh, discipline of Falun Gong. The practice combines meditation and gentle exercises with a moral philosophy centered on the tenets of truthfulness, compassion, and tolerance. That don't sound like a bad thing. After Mr. Lee introduced the practice to the public in China in the early 1990s, an estimated 100 million people started practicing. Since then, the practice has gained, uh, has spread to more than a hundred countries around the world. They have a, uh, uh, while some of the things that might be the values that they try to develop and so forth might be, uh, might be good, and you'd say there's nothing wrong with those things, uh, some of them are actually a blend of, of reincarnation and other pagan thoughts with Christianity. So you have this mishmash again, which is pretty much what the Gnostics were doing. The more common cults that we encounter um, include the Jehovah's Witnesses who deny the, de the deity of Christ, the Mormon Church considers Jesus to be a, a small g God who is a, a created being that attained his God status, which is, what the, which is the desire for all Mormons uh, to themselves acquire that, that God status. Um, in Christian science, life, truth, and love constitute the, the triune person called God. Christ is the divine idea and Jesus is the human man. So there's a mishmash all around us. Outside of the cults and, and other things, Christian researchers tell us that there are more than 45,000 Christian denominations in the world. Now, if you ask me, I can pretty much, at least in general sense, tell you the difference between Lutherans and Baptists. I can tell you the difference between a Presbyterian and a Methodist and a, and a Pentecostal. You can throw in um, Apostolic Christians and, and Mennonite and perhaps Nazarene and a, and a few more. Uh, but that still leaves 4,490-some 4 uh, denominations that I probably have no idea what they are. Uh, given that number, and you think, how can there be that many differences? There, there must be differences on uh, churches that believe you should have carpet and other churches that believe you should use hard, hardwood or those that believe you should pad the pews and those that think that that's ungodly and not nearly uh, uh, stoic enough. I, I don't know. 
while many of those differences, it would be appalling to think that there are 45,000 different denominations that came about from, from such uh, trivial uh, matters as, as things like I just mentioned. Um, but most of them are, are not. They, they come from on, on the basis of, of real questions about the gospel, about what it means to be saved, what it means to have uh, your salvation in, anchored in, in Christ. Many of the, the differences are in essential doctrines. Um, many of them are not. There are other doctrines that we would consider to be important but non-essential, not, not ones that make a difference in whether you're a believer or not. But the question that is dealt with here today is what is the basis of, of a real relationship with God? What, what makes our relationship with God a right relationship with God? Uh, and and, and by, by real and right, I mean one that is based uh, not on man's idea, but on the truth of, of God's word. Uh, what are those things? Well, in this opening chapter of Colossians, Paul provides us, I, I think, with a crystal clear answer to those questions. So if you've got your Bible, uh, open it up to Colossians, and uh, we're going to read chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing." as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our, fellow, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So let me start with a question. Do you believe that, uh, or does Paul believe that the Colossians are genuine believers. Is Paul writing to genuine believers uh, in the faith? Well, he says in verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. So a, um, he, he talks to them. Um, when we, when we look at how he defines them and how he addresses them, we'd have to answer the question, does he believe they're, they're, they're all believers? We'd have to say, uh, of course he does. He, he writes, and in, in, uh, it doesn't mean that all of them were, but in a general sense, he addresses this letter to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. And furthermore, he says, he and, and Timothy always give thanks to God when they pray, uh, whenever they pray for them. Doesn't mean they they all are always praying for them, but whenever they do, they're they're always giving thanks for their faith in God. So uh, yes, they are genuine believers. What about you? 
are you confident of your own belief, your own faith in Jesus Christ, your own position as a Christian? And how do you know that your answer to that question is right? Well, through his prayers of thanksgiving, Paul outlines the evidence of genuine Christianity. And here's how he does it. He says real Christianity is based on real faith, real love, and real hope. Those are the evidences that show up in the life of a person who is, is truly uh, a born-again believer in Christ. Considering faith, Paul says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ. So we start off with the idea here that a real relationship with God is based on faith. It, uh, there, there are other elements but a real, right relationship with God doesn't start with hope. It doesn't start with love. It starts with faith. Ephesians 2.8 says, By grace you have been saved through faith. If you have a, a real relationship with God, you have that on, on the basis of faith. It isn't because you enjoy fellowship with God's people. It isn't because you sing songs of praise and you enjoy doing that or you read the Bible or even pray. There are many people who read the Bible and, and, and pray who are not believers. They believe in something, but not the God of the Bible. They're not praying on the basis of the truth of God's Word. It isn't because you've been baptized or, or, or catechized or confirmed. None of those things define a, a, a Christian. A person of faith is not one who, or is one who has turned from their futile attempts to please God in their own way, and yielded their soul to the eternal care of God based on the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. Let me say it again. A person of, of faith is one who has turned from futile attempts to please God in their own way and yielded their soul to the eternal care of God through Jesus Christ. It's a term we refer to as repentance. It's, it's turning from the old way and turning to a new way of thinking. Turning from thinking, I can be good enough myself to warrant salvation, to saying, I am, am not good enough. There is no way that I can possibly, as many of these cults suggest, that I, I can, can modify my life so that I'm good enough to please God and, and I can earn uh, a place in heaven, a place that I deserve uh, to be there. We, we deserve nothing apart from Jesus. At the moment a, a person yields his life to God through faith, the Bible teaches us that an eternal transaction takes place. Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 24, and this is a verse that's stuck with me since I was five years old. When I responded from a, a pew here where Jill is sitting uh, to a, an invitation and, and spoke with an, an evangelist about my own salvation, we sat down together and this is the verse that he shared with me. When John wrote, truly, truly, or Jesus spoke in John, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word 
and believes Him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. So real faith, real faith is a done deal. That's a, God has, has arranged it in, in that way, that He's made us a promise. If we respond to the promise, He keeps His word. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30, that says that, that transaction is sealed by the Holy Spirit of God for the day of redemption. In other words, if your faith is real, you already have a guaranteed place in heaven. Is that good news or what? Now, Abraham in the Old Testament is an example of genuine faith. I'm sure you know Abraham's story. It's often mentioned, uh, Scott mentioned it again in the early service here, but, but Abraham was a pagan. He lived in Ur, the Chaldees, and, and he, he lived a, a, a good life there with his, his family. He had uh, an inheritance there. He was secure there in a, in a real place. Uh, Ur was located, ancient Ur was located in the, the, the area of, of modern-day Basra in Iraq. But God spoke to him there and, and called him to leave Ur to leave his family behind, aside from his immediate family, and travel to a new place that he knew nothing about. God didn't tell him what it was like or even where it was. He just told him to go. And, and Abraham went. He put his trust in God's promise uh, of a land that he couldn't see and an internal inheritance that is in heaven. So we, uh, we see that, that faith. Abraham just simply obeyed God. In James 2.23 says, Abraham believed God. It was counted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Friendship is something that we think of in terms of relationship, don't we? His relationship with God was based on genuine faith. Now, I want you to note again that Paul says, we have heard of your faith. A couple of characteristics of genuine faith that Paul points out here that come to the forefront. One important characteristic uh, of genuine faith is that it's no secret that uh, Paul noted the same thing when he, he wrote his letters to Ephesus, to Galatia, to Rome. In each case, he said, I know of your faith. I know of your faith. I've heard of your faith. Uh, real faith becomes obvious to others. Now, the question is, why is that? It's because the Holy Spirit of God comes into your life. You're a new creation according to 2 Corinthians 5.17. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians 6.19. The presence and the work of the Holy Spirit become obvious. Now I want to use just a, a, a simple everyday um, example, or, or just a, a contrast in our, in our thought. If, what does it mean if the Holy Spirit dwells within you? 
if you have a mouse in your garage, it soon becomes obvious to you that there's a mouse in your garage. <laughs> you begin to see that there are signs that there are a mouse, there's a mouse dwelling in your, in, in your garage. A mouse is a little gray creature about that long. If the Holy Spirit of God comes and dwells within your life, if the signs of a mouse in your garage are obvious, shouldn't it be obvious that God dwells within you? Can other people see God, the Holy Spirit, dwelling in you? Can you see that the, the, the example of that? In Exodus chapter 19 and verse 18, when God descended on, on Mount Sinai as the people were crossing the, the wilderness, the mountain was covered with a thick cloud of, of smoke. You remember that story? And, and the mountain quaked. When God moved into, taber into the tabernacle and the, and the temple, those places were filled with the glory of the Lord. When Moses left the tabernacle after meeting with God, his face glowed. He covered it with a veil. Elijah found God in a, in a still small voice. Samson found great strength and, and power through God's Spirit. David likewise found strength. Solomon found wisdom. The Holy Spirit becomes obvious in the life that it indwells. God, according to the Scriptures, God disciplines us when we, when we grieve or when we quench the Holy Spirit. We're disobedient to God. Scripture teaches that God loves us, and just as a father disciplines his son, we're disciplined by the Holy Spirit of God to bring us back into a right relationship with God again. And if that doesn't happen, and, and, and we know we're living in a life of sin, we have to wonder whether God's Spirit truly dwells within us or not. So it, it's an important thing. God reveals His, His presence in a lot of different ways. But the, the Spirit of God is undeniable in people of faith, and it is, and it, it shows. Paul also noted that the, the object of, of genuine faith, the genuine faith has an object, and, and that object is, is Jesus Christ. Just, um, just so that I can make sure I'm not in them, I read the obituaries most days. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm, fi I'm finding out that that's, that's probably more important now than it used to be. I was having a conversation with my granddaughter this uh, weekend. We were, they often like to hear stories from when we were younger and, and things that happened. And I, I talked about three different people and she's evidently becoming more and more aware of my age. And she says, are they still alive? <laughs> Unfortunately, none of the three were. <laughs> and so, so, so yeah. 
But my point is, and I'm sure you've experienced it too when you've read obituaries, that so often when you read an obituary, I, I often like to read and find out what church somebody was uh, connected with. A lot of times you read and there's no connection at all, and that says a lot. But other times you can tell when a person used to be a part of a church, but they're not necessarily anymore. It, it'll just say he or, or she was of the, the Methodist faith, or I'm not picking on Methodists, or of the Baptist faith, or, uh, or something of that nature. Um, whatever denomination it is that they once attended, that they were of that faith. Well, again, without casting judgment on, on anyone, uh, on anyone's faith, Paul makes it clear that genuine faith is focused on Jesus Christ. Uh, genuine faith is, is not based on what church we attend. Uh, whether we're a Baptist or a Presbyterian or a Lutheran or, or, or whatever, it, it's based on, on Jesus Christ. He is the focus. Genuine faith looks to Jesus Christ alone, His work on the cross, and His resurrection. So faith has a focus. Uh, uh, faith is, is evident. It has a focus. The Scripture teaches us in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, where it says, There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's only through Jesus Christ. Romans 1, 16 and 17. Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So Christ-centered faith recognizes who Christ is and recognizes what He has done for us. We recognize that Christ is God and that he, he serves a, a, a position in the Trinity as the Son of God, and that as the Son of God, He came to earth, sacrificed His life, paid the price for our sins so that we could have eternal life. Well, as it's, uh, you noticed as we read, and as is typical of, of Paul, he writes in long, long sentences. As this sentence continues, um, Paul gives thanks to God, not only for their faith, but their love for all the saints. Look at it uh, at the end of, of verse 4. It said, We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. What kind of love is this? You know, we talk about a lot of different kinds of love. This isn't, isn't uh, physical love. It's not even uh, the love between close friends. Uh, this isn't uh, brotherly love. Real love is agape love. It's God's love. It's the kind of, of sacrificial love that costs us something. Uh, that's, what that's what sacrifice is, isn't it? If we talk about sacrificial love, we can sometimes talk about sacrificial love without connecting the fact that sacrificial love requires sacrifice. <laughs> but 
But sacrificial love costs us something. It, it's uh, vividly uh, displayed in, in Jesus, who went to the cross under no obligation other than his obedience to his Father and his love for us. Uh, he said, I give my life willingly. Of course, our, our love isn't perfect. The love of the Colossian church, I'm certain, wasn't perfect. But it, it's a, un, undoubtedly a result of real faith. That real love stems from real faith. Real love in the Bible, we can, can read, I, I think probably all of us would, would agree, perhaps, that uh, 1 Corinthians 13, that chapter of, of Scripture, gives us the, the best definition of what love should look like in our lives. Um, if we're to start in uh, verse 4, he says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Now the fact that love is the greatest is because that, that love is that part which is apparent in our relationship with one another. Love does not exceed the importance of faith in salvation, but it comes as a result, and it's what we uh, spread around the world. When we see that, read that picture and those characteristics, well, I have to say, I'm not a perfect uh, believer in my, in my love, I'm not always sacrificial in all the things that we do. There was an illustration that uh, was given uh, once for uh, that's a challenge to us as we think about our, our faith. Uh, the story goes that a, a woman was was out shopping one day and, and came across a, a homeless man. She talked with him and, and in the course of their conversation, she invited him to her home for a, a warm meal. And as they sat and, and, and talked at, at the kitchen table, the man said, I wish there were more people like you in the world. And the, the woman modestly answered him and said, oh, there are. You just have to find them. You just have to look for them. And at that, the man shook his head and he said, but I didn't have to look for you. You looked for me. <laughs> That's what Jesus did. 
He looked for us. That's what love is. He, he, he sought us out like a, a shepherd searches for the lost sheep. And he did it out of love. We should pay attention to three aspects of real love that, that must be noted in, in the text. Note in, in verse 5, that, uh, or at the end of, of, of verse 4, that the love is extended to all the saints. Now, when we, when we uh, try to evaluate our, our own love, well, that's one of them that, that, that maybe is a difficult one. Uh, sometimes that's difficult. Just shake your head if you agree. <laughs> sometimes there, there are saints that are hard to love. Um, but it's important for us to know that we aren't called necessarily to be friends with everybody. The truth is we can't be a good friend to everybody. But we're expected to love everyone. We're expected to love all the saints and to, uh, uh, and, and to, to treat them as brothers and sisters in Christ even when it's hard, even when it requires sacrifice. We need to do that. Second thing here is that real love is the present fruit of past faith. I've mentioned that, I've alluded to that uh, uh, earlier, but it is the, the present fruit of past faith. So in the reading he says, uh, down in, uh, in verse 6, he just says, as indeed the whole world, uh, it is bearing fruit and increasing. So love bears fruit, and it, it comes about, but it comes about as a result of, of faith. And the thoughts uh, can kind of get ahead of each other here, but uh, Christ-like love in our, in our lives is the result of Christ-centered faith. If we have our faith there, that's where our love's going to come. And then thirdly, real love is a sign of a transformed life. Uh, what was it we read in, in 1 Corinthians 13? He said, faith that moves mountains without love is nothing. Faith that moves mountains without love is nothing. We often say that... Uh, Love is not a feeling. Love is an action word. Love is not based on how we feel, but what we do and how we, we demonstrate that. So it makes sense that James in James chapter 2 and verse 20 says, faith without works is dead. The two, faith and love go together. Without faith, there is no love. Without love, there is no faith. The Apostle John was an expert on love. Um, I'm not going to expound on it, but you might want to take your Bibles and turn to 1 John, 1 John chapter 4, and just follow along with what John says about love and our, our need to love one another. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So you see that connection between faith and love again? 
People who love are people who have been born of God. How are people born of God? They're born of faith. Anyone who does not know love does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that we, he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the substitute for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. God's love grows within us as we love him, that his love grows through us. So people of faith reveal the love of God by loving others. There's one more aspect of a genuine relationship with God, and that is real hope. We often express uh, our hope to others. Most often, it's in the context of, of something we, we aren't sure of. Like, I, I hope our Sunday school teacher doesn't bore me today. <laughs> or I hope the weather cools off a bit. Um, but the Bible speaks of, of love in more sure terms. Uh, than that. It's a, a confident hope. In verse uh, 6, Paul speaks of confident hope of things which are laid up in heaven for every believer. He says, which, he, he says the, uh, the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, and it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. It's that grace of God in truth that the people have hope in. That's where it's at. That's what it's about. So we think about it in, in terms of that. I'm going to give you a chance to, to interact here uh, just a little bit. But think about the hope of the believer. What are some things that you and I and have confident hope in in our in our lives name some in heaven yeah we have a confident hope that god has a place prepared for us in heaven what else do we hope in that god's in control yeah, we don't say, well, I hope God's in control of this. No, God's in control. We, we, we trust in that. That's part of, of our hope. We talk about a, a, a blessed hope of, of Christ's return. We, it, we, we talk about the hope of resurrection. In, uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, remember that, that Paul wrote to comfort the believers there who thought they, they missed the rapture. And, uh, and, and, and he said, no, no. And he explained that to them. And then he, he says at the end of that, that time that it is that hope of our own resurrection that means that we don't grieve like those who have no hope. Right, so we, there are a lot of different things. The hope of Christ's return, the hope of righteousness, uh, the hope of our home in heaven, the hope of future rewards. Sometimes 
uh, that's kind of um, uh, downplayed a little bit that that as believers we should should love and serve and everything be, because there's an eternal reward in going we, we should just do that out of gratitude you know and, and I've come to believe uh, more so in in recent days that we don't need to feel guilty about serving for reward if, if we want to feel guilty and we just want to serve it to gratify or be out of our gra uh, gratitude, that's okay because rewards aren't our idea anyway. They're God's idea, right? So, um, so they're going to come no matter how we, we look at it. The believer's hope is defined confidently. In, in uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, the Bible calls it the anchor of the soul both sure and steadfast. Real hope is sure. Real hope doesn't disappoint because of what it's based on. It's based on the truth of God's, of God's Word. And uh, so we're not disappointed by that at all. So God, who, who cannot lie, uh, is is the basis of our hope. It's the truth of the gospel. Real hope says, as Paul, is the motive for your love. Now, that's another interesting thought, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 15, 19 says, if, a, if in Christ we have no hope, in this life we are people most to be pitied. It's because hope in, in Christ compels us to love others, to love others into, in, into heaven. What we hope about eternal life ought to be the compelling factor in our lives of, deciding to, of desiring to see other people come to faith in Christ because there, we know there's a home in heaven and we know there's a hell, right? And so uh, that becomes our, our compelling uh, force. Paul says in, in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 19, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Uh, joy comes in seeing those you invest your life in, enjoying their own walk with faith, love, and hope. That's become one of, uh, as, as a pastor, one of, of my favorite verses. It just it's a joy. The pastor is is full of of both victories and disappointments, joys and and sorrows. But one of the greatest joys is being able to to see people that you've you've invested in with the gospel, people that you've loved, people that you've seen come to Christ. And seeing them grow and flourish and share their faith with others and 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 develop uh, uh, their own uh, leadership and 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 doing those things. So when we look at all this, it's no wonder, is it, that Paul expressed his thanksgiving for what he experienced or what he saw through the work of um, his his partner Epaphras in in Colossians in Colossae, to see those, those people in that church developing faith, love, and hope. So once again, genuine Christianity is evidenced by, by genuine faith, which results in genuine love, 
motivated by real hope. Praise, praise be to God for his faithfulness to us. I hope you picked up a set of notes uh, in the back. Um, there's some questions there for you to look at. And, um, and the memory verse that 